1: Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host and expert layman Matt Goodwin, and I am joined, as always, by your fake baseball economist, Alexander Chase. On this episode, we share a little bit about our still in process TGFBI drafts, play a little guessing game with our numbers of the week, talk about players with some nice under the hood stats who just need a chance to play more regularly, understanding media reporting and sourcing around the CBA negotiations, and so much more. But before we get to all of that, Alexander, how you doing? Not so bad. Uh, so weird story for a night uh, immediately. Yes, always down my my for weird stories. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I got caught in traffic on the way home because of the State of the Union f- tonight and like had to route myself around the U.S. Capitol in a really weird way. Um, <laughs> and it never occurred to me that I needed to not drive directly towards the U.S. Capitol while the State of the Union was about to mm. happen. So, uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That ever I imagine to you there before? are some, some people who take that pretty seriously. Does uh, does Waze have an avoid the State of the Union button? Probably not, right? <laughs> it does not. I can tell you from yeah. experience. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can avoid freeways, but you can't avoid really large, uh, important gatherings of the the heads of all of our government, except for the one. The one who's in a bunker somewhere.
2: Yeah, um, I I actually didn't look up who the designated survivor is tonight,
1: and I probably owe it to myself to do that. But that's a whole different discussion. Yeah, we probably should do that. I should probably know that honestly, uh, but I <laughs> do, don't. So is that like a tribute question you look? can
2: do for? Yeah, you should know I, that for yeah, class
1: tomorrow, right? I think we should. Yeah, I should bring that into my 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 class tomorrow. And uh, so while Alexander is furiously typing uh I, I maybe people don't know when the state of the union happens there are, everybody in our government is in one place so in order to protect against a doomsday scenario where uh as the tv show named designated survivor uh, posits there's some sort of an attack or or mishap where all of our government officials are uh, uh incapacitated i'll use that word incapacitated all at once one member of the cabinet every single time that we do the State of the Union is the designated survivor and does not attend and is holed up somewhere safe so that that person would automatically become president of the United States and try and rebuild our government. It's, it's fascinating stuff. So who was the selected designated survivor for tonight? It is uh, Gita Raimondo. She's the
2: Commerce Secretary. Do you have any idea what she did before? No oh man okay she's from rhode island or something like that i think she was a the governor okay. there um any case um keefer keefer sutherland is not the designated survivor for real life yes, thank goodness
1: um, for that in real life
2: <laughs> yeah in the event that her entire <laughs> government got like space jammed or whatever you know they all yeah, lost their yeah, ability yeah. To, to do whatever so yeah i don't know I, yeah that's there's your so civics yeah, lesson for the for night that.
1: Yeah. And, and we almost couldn't record Yeah, I mean, just for the record, obviously we're talking about the state of the union tonight. We're recording on Tuesday. You're listening on Friday or beyond. So, uh, it's a few days lag there, uh, as you well know. Um, but a very interesting start. Uh, I, and I think we're going to just forego the weather conversation in favor of the state of the union conversation. I think that's a, a nice, a nice way to just leave it.
2: Weather and traffic on the
1: twos, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, they do go hand in hand. (laughs) All right. Uh, We talked about Raz Slam last week when we had Mike Carter on and we talked with him a little bit. He's not a participant this year. uh, And so we were able to kind of talk rules with somebody who hadn't studied them and made a sheet and all of that, I think, was really, really interesting Uh, this week. Uh, as most of you listening probably know, TGFBI has kicked off. Both Alexander and I are participating in that this year. I, I believe, again, both of us for the first time. Am I wrong about that, Alexander? That is
2: correct. I, I did not sign up last year.
1: Uh, and, and last year, I didn't even know I could. I was so new, and and boy, I would have been in way over my head. I'm still in way over my head. I'm, uh, I just am. Um, But last year would have been even, even more uh, uh, challenging for me. Uh, so we're both rookies in TGFBI this year. Um, you are picking from what spot in your league? I am on the 12 spot, and, and but it's from a 15-team league, so that does not mean I am literally on the
2: turn. It's like there's two other people, or three other people, like after the turn that like get to snipe me and then it comes back to the the 12 spot turn traditionally just
1: enough spots where you're like well there's these four guys i like they're they might not all come back yeah it's it's tough i'm picking at 13 so it's a little bit better but same idea yeah
2: i'm doing this really crazy thing also where i am daring myself to spend a total of zero seconds on the clock um so i have auto picked every single time by setting my queue ahead of time so that means every time i have to have a contingency plan and feel confident in it and the nice thing is there is that i'm actually lying to myself and eventually i will stop but it's been a really fun bit and i felt like a great league mate as a result
1: so yeah well, yeah people won't be that that's maybe an actually a very interesting conversation where do you stand on the slowness of a slow draft i'm fine with it as long
2: as you're being reasonable
1: if that does that make sense like
2: yeah. Yeah, people like have to wait. If it's every pick, that's one thing. If it's sure. like the very first pick, for example, that's also not a thing that I'm not a big fan of. But like let's say that you're on the turn and you don't actually know what you want to do there and like you need to adjust because you're not sure who's going to make it back. That's one thing. So it's like the guys who like take forever for pick 5. That's the that's like the yeah, yeah, only yeah, real yeah. gripe. Um but I also like have done more than a few of like the just absolutely insane you have 45 seconds to pick like yahoo mocks in the past that just like mm-hmm. fry my brain like speed chess so uh, i get why you wouldn't want to do that to yourself um, yeah
1: yeah right yeah. i i appreciate the long uh slow draft form it does get a little tedious sometimes if you have a bunch of guys taking a couple of hours on each pick but i, I mean So in wrestling, my average pick time was way high at the beginning because the clock stops at 2 a.m. Eastern time, which is the zone we're in. Uh, And so I like have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. I'm not staying up until two. So it didn't look like my pick was going to come just the way that we had done pacing. And it must have at like 1115 or something after I'd gone to bed. And so. It, I sat on the clock till two, uh, got up, made my pick as soon as I, I saw that I was on the clock, but it like it started me at like a two and a half hour thing. So I understand that different people in different time zones, you know, sleeping and working and stuff. Today, I was on the clock in TGFBI right as one of my classes was about to start. And it's a back to backer. And all you teachers out there, you understand that even though you have a, a, a changeover from one class to the next, mm-hmm. It's not. It's three minutes, like literally for me, three minutes. It's never even enough time to make a quick run to the bathroom, let alone sit down and try and make a a a pick. So what I did is I went into the chat that we have, the group chat on on Twitter, and I just said, "Look, I'm sorry, but this one's probably going to take me a couple of hours just to get done because I'm working, I'm teaching, and so at the very least, I feel like if I'm being a little obnoxious in terms of the time, I'm being courteous in terms of. People not sitting there twiddling their thumbs, thinking that any moment I could pick when I know full well, it's not happening for a little bit. So I try and, and at least alert people to to what's going on. Um, it, it, it's tough. I, I'm The pace of my Raz Slam is such that there's a chance that the TGFBI draft, uh, 30 rounds, right? Do I have that right in my head? Yeah. It's 30 rounds. Raz Slam's 42. Because of the pacing, even though it's twelve team Rad Slam, fifteen team TGFBI, there's a chance my TGFBI draft is going to finish first. It's it might be a little bit of a horse race, which is interesting. It's not a criticism. It's just I don't know. I find that interesting. There are definitely people though that are like way up in arms about people who take more than even a half hour uh, when it's a four hour clock. So uh, you know, I, I try and put myself in their position, I, I suppose if you feel like you're, you're waiting three hours for every pick that gets to be a little bit tough, but I'd rather, I'd rather the three hours per pick and just roll with it and understand that that's going to happen. than those, those 30 second, forty five second stress fests, my goodness, by the time I'm done with those, I probably lost years off the end of my life. So, um, I will definitely take the slow format, even if it's extra slow over, over all that. Um, you want to talk a little bit about how you started from the 12 spot? I, th- I think people will find that interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, this has been a really weird draft. I find the the most fun I have from TGFBI is one, trying to wrap my head around like the implicit assumptions that like a closer in a second requires you to like believe in like, dear God, I don't get it. Um, But also like just seeing all the creative like pairings and things people do. Um, before i talk about mine my favorite thing is uh jordan rosenblum jordan finland familiar with them uh double tap um catcher in the third and fourth round getting sal perez and then will smith um mm. so uh he and i have been like joking that we hate each other in the process of like getting ready for this league and i think i may have accidentally goaded him into doing that and i'm really <laughs> proud of him but out of the 12 spot um garrett cole fell to me i was really happy there i had him about fifth on my board and then I picked up Raphael Devers on the other side. He was about 15th on my board, maybe a little higher because there were some catchers really high that I was like, I don't really believe that. And then like, I, I didn't know, draft. they were really on
1: high on mine too. I'm sure your your list for this um, was far more comprehensive than mine, but I, I looked at it and I was like, man, those, those catchers, it's got to be positional scarcity, right? That, that's driving oh, up yeah, their, their price significantly. What's
2: the, what's the difference between Sal Perez and the 24th best catcher? And then think to yourself, what's the difference between, um, let's say, for example, Rafael Devers and the last third baseman that's going to go? The statistical difference is larger for Charles uh, sure. Perez. Now, yeah, your
1: league. But just for those who don't know, yeah,
2: yeah, it's disgusting. Um, and, and so <laughs> I had um, like Perez like in the top ten of my draft ranks, but I, I knew the people wouldn't draft like that, so I risked that I wouldn't be able to get Perez. And I ended up with Elma 2 in the fourth, or in the third. So yeah, that was my third pick. Feel really great about that. I got Buxton on the wraparound there. He was a guy that was in my top 40 by earned values. And I know I'm going to have a very safe bench and end of the draft, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to take my risks up top. And then I got Brandon Lau, also a guy who is roughly in my top 50 or so at pick roughly 67 or whatever it is. Uh, no, no, no. That is that is pick sixty. Nope, I can't. Come on, math man. 72. I got him at 72, <laughs> and I'm in the top 50. And then I got Joe Musgrove, who I think could be a top 15 starter again. So I'm
1: really happy with all of the picks I have made in a combined zero seconds on the clock. Combined zero mm-hmm. seconds is huge, because here's the thing, uh, and, and kind of going back, I guess, a little bit to the the, the clock thing, but people, are, uh, Nick is famous for this. Set your cue, set your cue. I, maybe it's just because this is not, necessarily my my strength to be able to tell the future that some in the way that some other people can, um, or seem to be able to. But uh I wanna see the board. I want to know. Like I've set my cue to grab a pitcher, but then, you know, like there's this this run on third baseman or something. Do I want to adjust or do I want closers or you know, I do I need to zig instead of zag where I thought I could do one thing and things have changed or um you know whatever the case is, especially if the if the let's say the first three people in my queue are gone, now I'm to my fourth guy. Is that really the guy I want, depending upon how things shaped up? so I don't know i th- I guess there are some people out there you included at this point who are better at being able to anticipate those chess moves three or four down the line. That's definitely not my strength. I'm much more of a I'd like to see the landscape before me before I click that button whenever possible. Yeah, one of the
2: difficulties with predicting what people are going to do is you have to like either predict that someone is going to be rational, which is wrong, or that you're going to have to predict that they're going to be stupid, which is itself unpredictable. Like for example, the guy who was had the first pick in my league, picked Tatis, uh which is I guess kind of rare actually. Most people pick Turner, but then he picked Wander Franco with the 30th overall pick or on the turret. So he back-to-back shortstops and yeah. like Arguable reach on the first one, significant and inexplicable reach on the second one. There are things like that on every single TGFBI board. Sure. So, what I find is that on average, TGFBI ADP is an interesting indication of where the market's feeling about different players. You then look at the boards and you realize, oh, there are a lot of people who are doing some just absolutely insane things, like the guy in my league who took Liam Hendricks and then Ricel Iglesias in the second and third rounds. Or you know you, you can go to up and down the board. Someone will say that double tapping catchers is an insane thing. I don't know. I'm I'm probably going to try to hit a a second catcher by the the fifteenth round. I would love to get like Mitch Garver or something like that. You know, someone mm-hmm. I know that I trust. That would be ideal. So like you know, stupid is in the eye of the beholder. But like absolutely,
1: uh, and some people are willing to do things that are quote unquote stupid for content or because. You know they've done a bunch of of pay leagues and or you know a bunch of DCs or whatever and and this is this is not a uh, a buy in league and they have the freedom to do something and they they want to go all in and so they do something that's crazy enough to be uh you know is going to help them finish first or last. Um, it was interesting when we talked to Justin Mason about like some of the conventional wisdom around this and seeing some people kind of follow it and some people not uh, you know go against it. Um, it's been been very interesting. I, I I'll run down my picks here real quick. I'm right now we're in the um let's see the it says it's in in round and then it doesn't tell me. So where are we side. at? Just, yeah, my screen is is small because I'm trying to see okay. our conversation at the same time. So we're in the seventh. okay, seventh okay. round. It's coming up to me. We're on uh we're on uh pick nine in the seventh. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six players, obviously on my team. And I'm, I'm, I've got three picks till it's my, my turn again. Uh, I got Devers at 13. I, I actually was pretty pleased. I, I was torn. It was funny at 13. I was very torn between a bunch of different players. Cause it, when you're, when you're playing in a 15 team league and you're not used to it, those, those later ra- first round, quote unquote, first round guys don't feel like first round guys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was down to between Devers and Tucker. Part of me regrets not grabbing Kyle Tucker, who went 14. Um, uh, The pick was probably Betts until, you know, Saris took Betts. So if Eno took him, he definitely was the pick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I, but, but third base is, is kind of a wasteland pretty quickly. So um, I didn't want to be, be in the Bregman Arenado range where, you're still investing a bunch of draft capital without as much certainty, so I was pretty happy getting Devers at 13. Um, coming back, I grabbed Scherzer. Then in the third round, I grabbed I grabbed Salvi. I I I, I absolutely hate taking catchers early in drafts, um, but I do think that that's where the value is here. Now a lot of the and NF, uh, NFBC stuff that's been going on has seen these closers going so early because they're not they're not fob leagues. This is. So it does surprise me a little bit that closers still were going so ridiculously early. And I think that if they're doing that, you're, you're losing some of the value in the discrepancy because of the opportunity cost. Uh, but catcher, I think is, is one of those places where you still can can kind of make that up. So I got Sal Perez there in the third, I followed that up with Matt Olson. So my corners are pretty, pretty stocked. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if Olsen gets traded out of Oakland and into a better hitting situation, which is almost anywhere else. Um, I grabbed Chapman on the way back. Cause I was, I, I just didn't want to be super desperate for saves later on. Although I don't love his profile. Um, I, I feel like if he falters at all, the Yankees are going to be quick to take one of the other three guys that could easily fill the role. But, Um, value wise, it made sense. So I went away from my heart with that one and and with my brain and then coming back, I I got Varsho. I, I, I double tapped catcher. So I've got two before my, my seventh round pick, but with Varsho, you get a little bit more versatility too. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's been very, very interesting doing that with catcher. I feel like now I'm going to be chasing a lot of uh, steals and uh, s- saves, especially since I'm not super convinced Chapman is all that that solid. Um, like I, I said, the, I think the pick was the right pick <laughs> logically, uh, but I had to kind of hold my nose a little bit and do it. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things shape up as as this goes on. And and to your point, some people are doing some some crazy things. Um, you know, Josh Hader went in the second round in. Uh, in our draft, um, you know, this, the same person who took hater in the second round, it started with burns, then went judge Mondesi Springer, Brandon Lau. So there's some definite risk, different kinds of risk, but risk there, uh, and, and going that way. But if all of those guys perform, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good start. So I don't know. It's, it's been a very interesting experience. Uh, one of the things I love a lot about this is that you're drafting with with people who are absolutely savvy, you know that every single person has a plan, whether or not it's your plan, whether you agree with that plan or that strategy, or maybe the strategy is just, I want to be able to write a fun article about how this turns out. (laughs) Everybody's doing what they're doing on purpose. And I think that that's kind of fun.
2: Yeah. One of the things I'm noticing, uh, again, this is any total, but it is very interesting to look at is you have to think that some of these teams that are going double closer early are going to finish top two top three in the category and then just not be good teams um like yeah I, it could be i don't have any illusions about winning the overall i want to finish high in my league and i think that just doing well will be good enough for me as a person like if i'm in the top 100 or whatever i've joked about being in the top 50 but if i'm gonna be in the top 100 overall by finishing top three in my league or so i'll take it
1: I think I the have the opposite is- goal. I want to yeah. not finish in the bottom 100. <laughs> <That's->
2: <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to have that problem. Set yeah, your we'll lineups see. every week and we'll bug, bug each other. and We'll be fine. Um, yeah,
1: that's, that's my biggest thing. I'll be honest, is, is uh, staying committed throughout the year. Last year, this is going to be a serious conversation for just a second. and Then we can get back to the fun stuff. But last year, I had just started with Pitcher List. I felt like I should be doing better than I've ever done before. Uh, a lot of imposter syndrome with with like being in there and part of it. and um, I actually went through this part of the season where for probably three, four, five weeks, I didn't really check lineups at all uh, because things weren't going well, guys got injured and it put me in this really dark place until I realized like, what why are you feeling this way about this thing? Um, so, uh, I think, um, I, I don't know if other people have similar experiences with that sort of a thing, um, in terms of how their mood is affected by their successes or their failures with, with fantasy. Um, but I certainly did experience that. So, um, you know, it's, there are a lot of reasons why smart people don't win leagues and, and this is going to put me on a small tangent, but I saw a tweet the other day that was talking about. Linking where people finish in leagues like TGFbi with credibility, and it I just I, it's gonna sound like i'm I'm defending my own work because maybe I'm not gonna finish super high in this league, but I, they're completely different skill sets. and um and just because somebody might be uh, terrible at drafting or following through or they have a lot of stuff that distracts them over the course of the year and they miss a few uh, lineup locks and stuff doesn't mean that their work is is not valuable or or smart so anyway that's a tangent um
2: i would would say like i've definitely had some months or so at a time especially it's like i don't want to open up the yahoo app because i don't want to do anything at all generally it's kind of like what it was for me like last year so like i had one espn team and i put energy into it because i knew people in that league and i enjoyed it but like i I don't always feel the urge to just participate for participation's sake, whatever I'm the only person in the league. And it's now also I,
1: hard when you don't feel like your team is doing well and you maybe feel like it's some sort of, I don't know, like a, an indictment of your uh, ability and stuff. And and then if, depending upon how you're wired, if you're wired like me, it, it takes on a life of its own and I had to get control of that. And that's, that's a me thing. I get that. But in the, at the end of the day, like there are, that's just one of, of, of uh, a thousand reasons why Baseball is hard. Fantasy baseball is a marathon. Fantasy football is different. You have the time, you have the space. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Baseball is relentless and it's very easy to lose your focus over the course of a season. So anyway, uh, I'm very interested to see how this shapes up. I, I, My goal is to not embarrass myself. Hopefully, like you said, we uh, we send each other those reminders and... <laughs> And when I don't feel like setting my lineup, your your message is going to pop up and it's going to make me do it and, and things will be OK.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Here's I'm hoping for the best, mostly just because, like, I want to enjoy this. And I right, actually yeah. think that the process of not having to set up a lineup every day will be better. So I actually have and this is a really weird choice that we've made. I have a dynasty league starting up on fan where we've set our lineup settings to be about the same as NFBC. So you have a Monday lineup and you have a Friday lineup. Now for NFBC you can only change your hitters, but we're allowing ourselves to change the pitchers as well. And I think that'll be a nice I know that when I change my lineups, everything's the same. And that allows me to kind of think similarly in some situations rather than like having to put my brain in like eight different places. So I'm excited. I I really am about this season. I'm gonna have two places where I check leagues and I'm going to know people in every league that I'm playing in except for Razlam, which doesn't count and yeah that's a big thing um i think we are required in a lot of ways to want to do this um and i don't think that's always easy whenever like there were just other things to do the number of people i know who are involved in fantasy who like say hey i need to take a break i overexposed myself is really high
1: right yeah
2: because it's really easy to get really excited by a bunch of projects and then just realize it's like there are two hurdles for finishing it and you have something else and it just stops happening and so this spring i've been doing a lot of work to kind of just like finish things and uh, as a result i put out some more articles about some stuff i Mm -hmm. finished some projects i felt a lot better about this and a lot of other work i've been doing outside of baseball adjacent stuff and i think that this is like the this is fun i want to do this is harder than people give credit for and um i really like it whenever that's uh something yeah. that we can put ourselves in position to like actually achieve so not that um, I,
1: I love all these yeah. these uh young hipster abbreviations that your generation has coined but i think that uh there's a lot of fomo around wanting to participate in the thing that everybody's doing right you want to everybody's talking about Slam. i want to be in it everybody's talking tgfbi i want to be in it and that's wonderful i love that razz slam is very low commitment in terms of like mid season, there's a couple of fob runs and it's best ball. So, um, you know, that's, that's fun because you get to do the draft and then you kind of let, kind of get to let it do its thing. Um, It's very easy to overcommit. Uh, It's very easy to, you know, you fall in love with a couple of players, you get them on too many teams, uh, they get hurt. And now across the board, you're struggling in different formats in different ways. I, I just think it's very easy to, um, uh, have the fun turn into a slog and, and when anything turns into a slog different people react to it in different ways so uh, i have no problem sharing how i reacted to it it was not great um and so i'm putting that in the rear view and, and hopefully this this season is a little bit better um yeah go ahead alex yeah i would say kind of like a last thing there is like
2: um i don't think um all all that told like when we're talking about like the analyst stuff the, like this tells us that people are bad there are some really interesting things though that it could show us people are are good in some different ways so i tend to think that, yes you know, there are lots of ways to be wrong there are there are only a few ways to be right in some things um and i tend to take people uh at their word when they say yeah, the reason I won is because I tried really hard in these three ways, and I just know that everyone else in my league had struggled, struggled with that. So that was it. I'm not. I'm not a genius. I just ex- executed a plan that someone else laid out for me.
1: And I've heard sure. that from a few people, um, for yeah. sure. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at the top and trying to dissect how some what somebody's path to victory was. I think that's much more telling. It's much more positive. It's much more productive than it is trying to take the other side and and chase people down rabbit holes and, and label them as being not good or not deserving of being an industry person simply because, uh, they, they had an off year or a bad year, or that might not be their format or their thing. There's a lot of really smart people writing about baseball who aren't really fantasy baseball people. There's a lot of people oh, yeah. who are industry people who aren't analysts, uh, aren't fantasy analysts who are involved in these things. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on there and, and we could probably do a whole episode on that. I, I didn't intend on bringing us to this place, but here we are. Um, I do want to shift into our numbers of the week segment. But before we get to that, we are going to take a very small break. And we're back. Alexander, we haven't done a game in a while. Uh, I'd like to try and do a, a short game here so that we can get into the crux of things. But we're going to be talking today uh, about people who have maybe undefined roles or who have been in platoons in the past or things like that. But their their numbers are good and, and all they really maybe need is the opportunity or a tweak uh, from one side of the plate or the other or, uh, you know, uh, one side of the mound or the other doesn't really the metaphor doesn't really carry over but you get my point um and so before we jump into all that i want to i want to throw uh this at you this is going to be maybe sound a little convoluted uh like a, i'm cherry picking things and i guess to a certain degree i am because you got to make a decision at some point um so i'm going to set the parameters here um and I, i'm i have faith that you're going to be able to follow me because if if i can understand what i've written uh you definitely can um, so uh, looking at left-handed hitters, only lefties, only against right-handed pitching. Okay, so lefties okay. against right-handed pitching, a minimum, excuse me, I am sorry, I'm trying to catch my breath for some reason, it escaped me, and uh, I'm trying really hard not to cough directly into this microphone. Uh, So let me try that again. Left-handed hitters versus right-handed pitchers. Minimum 100 plate appearances. WRC plus equal to or greater than 150. There are 14 of them. Some of them are names that you absolutely would believe are there. And it's not because they have splits or platoons. It's because they're lefties and they mash righties regardless because they mash everybody. Um, we don't have to have you guess all 14 of those players, but do you think you could throw out? uh, Let's see what we can do. Can you give me five names and hit on all five in the top 14?
2: Ooh. Okay. Can we do that? I'm sure I can try.
1: Um... Of course you can try. (laughs) Would you like me to give you the parameters one more time before we do this? I should probably Uh, do that. Yeah. Left-handed hitters, left-handed hitters only against right-handed pitchers, minimum 100 plate appearances, wrc plus of 150 or greater in that scenario the question for me really is
2: can i name five consecutive lefties without screwing up um (laughs) so i know there's a couple that i i can probably guess um like for example i'm just going to mentally picture who is atop of the wrc plus leaderboards for last season and is left-handed so like i know for example um Bryce Harper, like I'm I looking at a board here for NFBC. So I'm just like thinking who's left hand at the top of the first five rounds. So Bryce Harper, let's start there.
1: Bryce Harper is number one on this list. His WRC plus versus right handed hitters was 193. Yeah, that sounds about right for him. He was finished the last
2: year at about 170 overall. So he had to be yeah, really high.
1: Good year. That's a big number. Bryce just, Harper is good.
2: Just uh, to pull back a curtain for you guys for why that makes so much automatic sense if you're a left-handed batter, a right-handed pitcher's like um, stuff you're going to be able to just see a little bit better and a little bit earlier compared to other people because you're not like looking behind yourself to see it. Like if you're like facing someone who's the same-handedness, like the the ball is coming out like behind your back even sometimes it's not great close to that at least so if you're opposite handed there's just like more room to see it and also people's pitches their their best pitches break um kind of towards the plate for you instead of away from it like towards you so unless someone can as we like to say like back foot a slider which they are usually are not very good at Mm -hmm. you're going to be swinging at stuff that is going to be some really good places or isn't someone's best pitch. So that's why that all works so well. And that's why like Harper is significantly better against righties than he is lefties. Um, The next couple of guys, I feel like I could miss on handedness really easily, but I'm going to just do my best to get through here. Um, Kyle Tucker.
1: Kyle Tucker is not in the top. 14 but i will i'm going to give you honorable mention here because he's 15th with a wrc plus of 149 so that is that is sickening you're very close <laughs> um the next guy i have to guess is shohei otani yes shohei otani is number 13 he was right at 150 okay okay well
2: um and now comes the part where i have to like are these people actually left-handed or not because those guys i know are lefties um is tatisa lefty
1: I don't think so. I'm pretty sure God, he's right-handed. Yeah. I don't um, see him on the top. Oh, oh, on this okay. list, Wait. So I think that's pretty strong uh confirmation. Most
2: obvious one here. Juan Soto.
1: We guess Juan Soto's number 2, uh WRC plus 181, which is interesting because he's such a beast and such a monster and in, in the best ways possible, and Harper still beat him by 12 points. Yeah. That's that's wow. crazy. Um all right, uh Jose Ramirez. I, I don't think he's lefty i'm gonna look that one up because i I think you should look him up. he's not on his list i can tell you that okay um i'm gonna go off the wall for a last official guest then mike zanino mike zanino is very off the wall i i don't know if he's righty or lefty honestly off the top of my head um oh, he's a right because he
2: murders ones. lefties okay i got this backwards yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that,
1: i think that yeah Yikes. oh man yeah, well, man, there's a split guy. Uh, Kyle Schwarber, let's finish that one. Kyle Schwarber day. is on okay, the list, number 9,
2: 157. Okay, I'm, I'm going to look up some people and you're going to tell me how wrong I was about the tw- about who I was overlooking then. How's that?
1: <laughs> uh, Yeah, listen, I'll, I'll go through the list 1 through 14. I think there are a couple of people who are interesting and a nice segue into our case study for today, our central question. So I'm going to go through the list 1 through 14. I'll give you the the name and the WRC+. plus. And then there are a couple of people I do want to circle back to because I think they're very, very interesting uh, in terms of being so high on this leaderboard. um, But what does that mean for the upcoming season? So number one is Bryce Harper, as you correctly identified, uh, WRC plus 193. Again, this is left-handed hitters against right-handed pitchers, minimum 100 plate appearances. Uh, Number two, Juan Soto at 181. Number three is Jesse Winker, 178. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's uh that's a nice number for 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 Winker there. Uh number four, Jared Walsh, one sixty-six. Hmm. Number five, Brandon Belt at one sixty-five, tied with Joey Votto uh at one sixty-five. Brandon, is it Lau or low? That was one's Lau. Lowe. Brandon That Lau. one's Lau. Yeah. Okay. So Brandon Lau. Uh <laughs> Brandon, if you're listening, and I hope you are, we mean no offense. Um So number seven is Brandon Lau. He was uh, at 161. Number eight, uh, this, I love this. I really love this. Uh, Michael Brantley, 158. Number nine was Kyle Schwarber, 157. Brandon Crawford is number 10 at 156. Number 11, Rafael Devers at 152. Number 12 was Jason Castro at 152. I have to imagine his plate appearances were... Close to the media yeah, 120, 120 plate appearances. So, to take that for what it's worth in that context. Number 13 is Shohei Otani at 150. And then number 14 was Yasmani Grandal at 150. Uh, at 149 was Tucker, Cedric Mullins at 148, Freddie Freeman at 148. And then it kind of goes from there. Yeah. Um, oh, I scrolled so,
2: down, I pulled this myself. Jose Ramirez is 23rd on this list. So. Oh,
1: there he is. He is Ooh, 23rd. So, you yeah, were yeah. not wrong about his hand. He's a switch hitter so um, that's that's where my confusion in. came in yeah okay and that also probably i mean obviously it gives him less opportunities it's for 425 plate appearances though that, that yeah this i pulled, mean so. every single time he
2: shows up or he there's
1: a there's already on the mound he's gonna bat lefty
2: it's just of know, course right allegedly helping right. him
1: yeah. out I'm so sorry. here are some names that jump off this list uh to me that are interesting michael brantley is famous for for being kind of batting average um but this seems like it would probably be a pretty big discrepancy between this and and uh, lefties, left-handed pitchers they're sitting against. Uh, Crawford jumps off this page. Jared Walsh jumps off this page as people who obviously were very successful in certain circumstances, but are not necessarily high on people's lists or, or on people's radar. So, you don't have to necessarily talk about those players in particular, but I think they're a perfect segue and you certainly can talk about those players into our central question, which is who are some guys that don't necessarily have great roles or opportunities or are not locked in. There's some question marks or uncertainty, but there are numbers that are encouraging that we should be paying attention to because if they get locked in or they get that opportunity or they get that role, it could get very, very interesting. Uh, Talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, the reason I was interested in this sort of number and, and I appreciate you like throwing me uh, through the loop for like actually having to think about who's obvious for this question um, <laughs> is that there are a couple of different ways that that sort of uncertain role, uncertain playing time situation doesn't always blossom into the perfect full breakout that you wish it does, because you know and look down this sheet things become pretty obvious like for example i have expanded this out gavin sheets oh that's a terrible pun is 19th on this list with the 143 wrc plus it was only 160 pas but like that is really good for a guy that we don't care that much about that is why by the way he is dhing for the chicago white Sox as often as he is or he did i guess and you could not expect the gavin sheets would be this good in a full-time role there's just no way early on in jesse winker's big league career he was just absolutely killer 70 percent of the time and didn't yeah. play the other 30 percent of the time he's sad right. and then he had like a cold streak i remember i i, can't, I think that was 2019 uh yeah i he, yeah, he had a cold streak in like 2019 or so um like may or so and he just got like benched fully and you know he wasn't playing the other time so just it was over We've worried about people like Brandon Lau getting potentially platooned because this is a great split, but it is ugly on the other side of things at times. Yeah. And if you go down the list here, you know, a lot of guys for like our understanding of who they are, like they end up being very different. Brandon Lau's a 270 hitter against um, it It's not surprising. Like Jared Walsh bat, batted 333. Winker batted 346. A lot of these top guys are just it's insane. Like, yeah kyle schwarber's batting average 264 you think of him as like a batting average liability i remember like a while ago whenever i was writing my piece about like the daily lineup system a lot of it was actually driven by like what if all of these platoon guys you know you could rotate them out of your lineups so we go through this because i want to make sure we have a frame of reference for what really good for these people might be before we look up the ugly side of things one of the things i pulled ahead of time today and i pulled this for lefties not for righties for a reason but i pulled for lefties the league-wide splits for left-handed batters against both right-handed and left-handed pitching um so lefties against righties the strong side of the platoon split um they had a league-wide batting average of 243 not great but they get shifted against an obp of 320 uh, slugging of 417, then a Woba well of th- uh, 320, which is like about starter average. So, like, lefties, generally speaking, on average, were pretty good. Um, now, there's some people who aren't that good, lay this down. There's people who are really good. bring this up. The thing about lefties is like a lot of them might only play against right-handed pitching. So, when we flip it around the other side of things, lefties against lefties, the numbers are ugly, and these are probably the good ones. So, the average, yeah. so the batting average is like 228. 300 obp 355 slugging for a 289 wOBA. that is bad um and these are again the ones who play now for righties the splits are a little bit different typically if you're a righty who gets to bat it up against righties that means you're playing full time you're probably a pretty good batter whereas the righties against lefties like that's the big side platoon split but also there might be some platoon guys in there so i'm gonna pull those and i might pull them they were slightly better um but, yeah, it's worth investigating this because there are a lot of guys that I'm vaguely interested in or curious about or who are blocking someone I'm curious about Yeah, <laughs> who have looked very good and in limited roles. And some of them, I, I think, maybe full time real, they'd be able to survive it. Like, Brandon Lau should play every day. Like, what else are the Tampa Bay Raiders going to do? They can platoon everyone thrown. Well, them I there. think part Please. of theirs
1: because they just like to get cute with everything, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, rest him once in a while if it is against a right,
1: against a lefty, I guess. But like,
2: he shouldn't be part of a platoon, per se. Someone well, else here's
1: here's something I want to throw out there just as a thought, and you can take it whatever way you want, and if if you want to leave it dead on arrival, that's fine. But there's th- this this thing that I keeps running through my head. Number one, if you have somebody who's really good in a in a, a platoon situation, and they get full playing time, you almost would have to expect that they're numbers, overall numbers are going to come down because they're mm-hmm. they're playing to their strengths. They're not playing to their weaknesses. On the other hand, <laughs> what you see them do against a handful of relievers who come in and they don't get yanked is not necessarily what they could do against that side of the plate if they had more regular at-bats and could get into a groove and work on that weakness. So I... I, I when we're making these judgments about players who are on a side of a platoon, it's for a reason. Yes, I get that. I totally understand. And it can be very different when somebody knows that they have the role and they're going to get every day at bats and get those looks. They're going to probably still be worse than what they're, they're You know, the strong side of that, of that split, but they could potentially be better than what they're showing you in very limited small sample sizes. When they're not seeing it all the time, they don't get the chance to grow and adjust and develop and adapt. So I think those are interesting elements here when we're talking about looking forward. That
2: is like an exceptionally good point. And I definitely think there are a couple of guys on the list of names I pulled ahead of time who fall very directly into that sort of situation and um, it's worth noting that i don't really care all that much especially for the weak side of things what people's specific platoon splits are i do want to make sure we can have like a look at the top end in one particular season because it's fun but like it takes (laughs) somewhere on the order of three thousand career plate appearances for both sides to get like an accurate understanding what someone's like platoon splits are going to be in comparison to league average just using that to regress things back like it's not a science it is a whole lot yeah. of just just fuzz um like we're talking about like pitchers home run rates being more meaningful <laughs> it's like it just
1: <laughs> yeah
2: no it, it's ugly so and it's ugly exactly for the reason you brought up there there isn't consistency there isn't an ability for people to be one version of themselves um so I actually want to start here with a guy that I don't think represents the rest of everyone else, but just fits so perfectly there when you brought up, um, I want to talk about Andrew Vaughn uh, who I really love who did yeah. really well in some things last year and who didn't look great for all of that last year. Um, now, did, did you roster Andrew Vaughn in any leagues? Did you have to deal I with
1: it? Oh, yes. Uh, How no, I will. Here's the thing uh, to go full circle to what I said at the beginning What I did with Andrew Vaughn uh, is is useless information because uh, it was, well, only because it it came, it went through that kind of dark period where I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't acting on things. So in some cases, I probably dropped him too quickly because I was chasing something um, and just wanted to get out of the app. And in other cases, I probably held on to him too long because I wasn't, I just wasn't managing. So uh, I do remember not wanting to let him go, though, believing wholeheartedly that he was. One good series away from just everything locking in, and I was going to have had him while he was not great and then dump him, and then somebody else is going to pick him up and benefit from his, you know, his turnaround. Yeah. Uh, had, I distinctly had, remember that.
2: He had an injury at the end of the year, which messed things up, but he also had Tony LaRusso just yanking him out of lineups randomly which messed him Mm -hmm. up and he had learning to play the outfield on the fly which probably didn't help at all there's just like no reasonable understanding of like baseball that would have like led to this being a conducive season for him yeah result pretty not good um so i'm going to quote his platoon splits and then i'm going to say lol he had a (laughs) 938 ops with a 383 obp against lefties um he's right-handed So that makes actually a lot of sense. Uh, He's the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, he just crushed them. Um, Against righties, who he got a surprising amount of run with, but never like consistent, like, was the starter for a full week sort of stuff. It would always just be, like, randomly, like, Leary Garcia would, like, get him bumped out. Or just people off the street, seemingly, would walk into the White Sox lineup above him regularly. But he also had a 609 OPS against righties, which is very bad. But if you're a team's number three, or the, if you're the number three overall draft pick, a team's top pick and their top prospect and you're debuting, you're going to get some run and there were injuries or some other things. It's really important to note. And I like to pull him out. as like a good case of what you brought up, how things changed as the season went on. So one of the things you can pull, um, I, expe- I especially like this for strikeout rate is you can pull his strikeout rate over the course of the season. I'm going to set it to be a hundred PA rather than 50 which tells a really interesting story for his first hundred or so PA. He had like a 28% strikeout rate against everyone. Mind you, not just radio Celtics. And that continued on for about the first 200, 250 plate appearances. Then about half a season in, he started adjusting and his strikeout, rate Dropped to about 15%. That is a figuring it out on the fly. while well, figuring out how to play outfield defense on the fly adjustment that cut his strikeout rate by more than the third. The dude's right. really good. As a result, over the course of the year, his hard contact rate was just stellar. We're talking like 34-ish percent for most of the year. Like We're talking adjusting to make more contact and not losing the power as a result of it.
1: Right. That's incredible.
2: So I want to note yeah. that he's a guy that I think really tells the story of what could go right here. Where someone's good, they adjust, they get an opportunity, and maybe everything wasn't perfect under the hood, but he's definitely a guy that I am buying. He's on my Raz Slam roster. Um... He went for way too much, but not too much in this like (laughs) dynasty startup auction that I had over the weekend where he was like going near 20 bucks. And I mean, like, yeah, he's good to probably pay that off. It's just like, no, no discount. People believe in it, right? So I just want to say that's why you should. Um, even though, hilariously, if you look at his first half, second half splits, um, which he was injured, but like, still, I just mentioned that thing about the strikeout rate and changing his. Post All Star break, OPS was six ten or six twelve. Mm. Like, that's really bad. Um, yeah, had four two ten average and like a sub three hundred OBP. Like that's not playable. But right. he was pretty unlucky, and the skills growth was actually kind of clear despite the opposite of results. So I'm intrigued, and I really well, hope it also to seems to, to be the
1: trend. Him. I we've gotten so used to and, and I think spoiled by the the Juan Sotos who just come up and rake. Um, that we have expected that from Kelnick, and we've expected that from Kirillov, and we've expected that from Vaughn, and doing this at the major league level is really, really hard. It's it's just really difficult. A, adjusting to a new city, new pressures, new positions—all of those things. Again, these are human beings. They are incredibly talented, elite baseball players who are human beings and are susceptible to burnout and and overload and and all of those things so Mm -hmm. um i I think it's perfectly reasonable to think andrew vaughn didn't just suddenly get bad at baseball you know he he's it's way more likely that he is going to come back and he's going to do what rafael devers did after his down year than he's going to be keston hera you know it's i think that's it's You have to look at those types of things and understand the narrative and everything that you're talking about. That makes perfect sense. Who are some other, other guys? Is there any pitchers you want to talk about in in terms of this? I I think it's important to look at both sides of the ball, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
2: um, There are a lot of guys that I feel like are kind of like flexing in and out of rotations and like, they're going to start for a lot of the year. That's just going to be the reality. Like um, I feel like a good person to talk about that going the other way though, is uh, Christian Javier for the Astros who. Has kind of been somewhere between a starter and a reliever for a couple of years now. Um, I remember uh, watching the Astros a lot because I was covering them essentially during the 2020 playoffs. And yep. um, the Astros did not have a good bullpen that year. Um, they made it yeah, as they seemingly always do pretty far. And he was basically one of two um, like players that was trusted at all at all in 2020 um so there'd be a lot of games where someone would pitch somewhere around four or five innings then he'd pitch the rest of them until they handed the ball off to presley in the last inning yeah so javier was definitely a guy who had that role thrust upon him late in the year and looked pretty good at it they had a lot of people who were kind of around I remember Framber came up and or was around and you know i think in 2020 yeah aside from one start mccullers was really solid Grenke was around so like they had like a decimated rotation after losing both verlander and cole but they ended up with six arms in the playoffs which is incredible like yeah their ability to just like spit out arms has been incredible um and then this last year you know they signed um odor and um luis garcia appeared and javier went to the bullpen he pitched 100 innings last year uh just really yeah. wild. But he started the year in the rotation. And he finished it not on the best note. There's some wonders about what happened to his command that could be answered depending on how you feel about things. Um, but he's a guy that I, I want to point to as kind of like existing and working on things in a little bit different way than you might have kind of expected. So I'm gonna pull his splits by month because I can get game starts by month. So yeah. Um in April, he had a 0.87 ERA across four starts.
1: Yeah, that's good.
2: Um, that's very good. Yep, 26 strikeouts against uh, 79 batters. That's like more than a 30% strikeout rate. He walked six batters, so we we're looking at somewhere around a seven, eight percent strike or walk rate. Yeah, a sub one whip. And then things fell apart in May. He had five starts, had four five ERA, one sixteen whip, which isn't great. Uh, the strikeouts weren't quite there but they were still pretty good and the walks ticked up considerably watched walked 17 batters out of 131 for like a walk rate that's close to 12 and it kind of stuck near there all year but he was really good despite it because in his bullpen role his ability to kind of just like walk the one guy that he couldn't get after and then just strike out other people and get out surround them is more viable because you aren't expected to like save yourself for the fifth inning as a result i have no idea what to do with his performance now. His October was terrible. <laughs> um, his September was terrible. His basically everything post All-Star was terrible. And He wasn't great and wasn't terrible, but he wasn't great in the postseason either. So I don't know where to place him. Uh, there are, you know, some confusing signs in there. He walked just a ton of guys throughout the entire year. But as a young pitcher, I think trying to make sense of who he might be rather than who he could be, like who he might be right now, Um, Based off of these very different samples with different approaches and like thinking about what he can do differently. uh, Tasking with different things is very confusing. Um, So I don't bring him up as someone who I have answers for. I do think, you know, an offseason of work, which I don't know that he's necessarily had because of the lockout. Right. And and also notably, the Astros are changing pitching coaches. Brent Strom's gone. He's off to Arizona. There's the capacity for Christian Javier to be a different pitcher. I don't know that we're going to see the fully formed version of him this year, but he's a guy that I'm very interested in
1: uh, a long time because he's been in the majors for a while
2: and he's only 24.
1: Yeah, especially if the, and we don't have to get into this too hardcore. We might get to it quickly as an off the books in in a minute here, but um, if the CBA gets settled sooner than later, which (laughs) who knows? McCullers did have a setback in, in his, uh, his situation. So uh, I think you would get a chance to see how Javier starts the year. That obviously doesn't help in drafts, but you could get a sense of what his approach is. Um, Really. It's obviously going to be a small sample size, but you might see a change in say pitch mix or uh, effectiveness of a certain pitch early on, or, location or, um, a, a approach and trying to go after guys. Um, you know, as we've talked about getting that first strike is a big deal. Uh, you did a lot of work in terms of looking at eventual outcomes and, um, uh, things like that in terms of like CSW and all that. So if he can make those choices in different ways, maybe because of the coach, maybe because he's a year older, maybe because He's got a better idea of, of what's working and what's not. And I really feel like a lot of these guys who who have good talent um, and have those kind of wonky results, it's probably just a tweak or it's maybe a telegraphing of some sort or, or you know, digging in and, and looking at film and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just missing off the, the outside corner on a lot of these pitches, but uh, everybody knows I'm just missing, so they take them. Um, if a couple more of those start being strikes, maybe that opens up a, a lot more swing and miss stuff because people are going to chase a little bit because there is the chance that it could be. A, there's, there's so many ways that it could go right for somebody like that who has the the talent and has shown the talent. I, I certainly think given the fact that unless the lockout lasts so long that McCullers is, it, it kind of comes back from his setback, he's going to get an opportunity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, Being confused by him is seemingly normal. Here I have his, like, savant player comps, which are really funny. He has 2020 Justin Justin Dunn and 2020 Eliezer Hernandez, who are not people you want to be compared to in terms of, like, things all that much. The results have not been there for them. He also has 2021 Bailey Ober, 2021 Jose Urquidy, which are, I guess, okay comps, and 2021 Freddy Peralta.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's... i don't know man <laughs> do i need to be worried about freddie peralta <laughs> I don't yeah so. i know right what does that actually mean yeah, yeah that's uh, i mean in terms of whether those comps are helpful i think we can let's make that a very quick pass fail those comps fail <laughs> that's not really very helpful at all I, yeah it's it's wild
2: um so yeah javier is a guy that i'm watching um I'm,
1: heels do you want Again. to maybe just in terms of time here just kind of talk about a few other people that you think yeah, fall so in this there, category? Were, there were and several people can kind of dig into the stats and the data themselves but other people who are uh good um uh symbols or, or exemplify what you're talking about
2: yeah um adbert elzele is another guy who pitched in the rotation for a while wasn't great went to the uh bullpen, and was in his bullpen role able to tinker with his pitch mix and add some stuff, and was really effective there, part of that also, and this is kind of the thing that I'm worried about a, if you're in the bullpen, you can kind of like tap into some velo a little bit better, and a lot of people's stuff is a whole lot better with a tick or two more velocity. yeah he probably goes back to the rotation next year. the cubs need to give him a chance because they need to finally create a pitcher. The cubs have not like created a pitcher in like a decade, it feels like. So he's a guy I'm interested in. Uh Tanner Hook's a guy I love. He's Mm -hmm. his stuff out of the rotation was phenomenal last year. It just kind of feels like there's a possibility he becomes kind of like a paired, like long man or something like that, just because they don't feel like he can, you know, be a full time starter. They don't want to risk it and they're in Boston. But I really want him to get the opportunity. And he's a guy where I feel like the lack of role doesn't scare me because he's shown me he can be good at as a starter when you look just at the starter numbers. And that's the sort of thing that I want to be doing. Um, some other guys, uh, Patino in uh, Tampa Bay, I'm curious about. I don't know. He's obviously young. It's an offseason. Typically, things change a whole lot. And then Garrett Whit- Whitlock, another guy who like, is he going to get turned into a starter? Is he going to stay as like their fireman? Boston's confusing there's a lot of guys whose roles are in flux yeah. there i belong i buy Whitlock as a reliever that i will say um no matter the role I think he can be good as a reliever but I have no idea if that will translate as a starter so those are all pitchers who are like they are on my mind as I'm going late through these raz slam situations or like <laughs> trying to figure out who I maybe want to take you know post pick 300 in tgfbi yeah. to run out of <laughs> a roster it's it's all tough right but you got to take sure some selective bets and those are all guys who even if i'm not buying all of the bets the challenge of figuring them out is going to be difficult and part of what we need to make sure we're doing correctly is not just like strictly looking at the overall because it's not going to tell the full picture
0: for a lot of them
1: yeah i mean if you're going to be rolling dice you might as well try and weight them a little bit right um yeah. make at least an educated guess rather than just a complete dart throw um, let's hit this off the books quick. We are at an hour. Um, we'll, we'll definitely not belabor this point, um, especially not in the traditional way, but I'd like to go off the books and talk a little bit about the CBA and the negotiations that are going on, not from the typical, the owner's stink, Rob Manfred uh, is awful. Uh, those things are all accepted and true. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important that we we bring up and, and hopefully... Is becomes more of this narrative. I think we see it in our circles because we are, you know, uh, in this Twitterverse with a bunch of other people doing the kinds of things that we're doing that are in baseball all the time, even in the off season as well. Um, but kind of the the narrative that's out there and our uh, media literacy as it relates to what we're seeing and hearing and understanding the sources. I actually, I try really hard not to jump into the fray with these things because they're, I'm not winning hearts and minds on Twitter. I know that there's probably uh, a thousand things that I want to say that might stir the pot that that for every one that I actually do and even the one that I put out there usually is fairly mild but um, I, I forget which one of the MLB mouthpieces it was the other day it kind of just said, you know like well, I have a source who says that they're really. They're really feeling optimistic about this thing. And, you know, one of the players who's in the room quote tweeted it saying, this is just not true. And people kind of went after him. Um, and rightfully so. You know, he's like, well, I mean, it's the opinion of my source. Oh, and was I actually. Heyman. Yeah. <laughs> John Heyman. Yeah, yes. Yep. I actually couldn't stop myself from responding and saying the opinion of somebody in the room, who's feeding it to you so that you will go and say exactly what you said, because that narrative is beneficial to one side of the argument that doesn't make it true. It's actually really irresponsible reporting. Now, if you understand that he feeds his family by getting a paycheck from, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if it's directly from major league baseball, but like, you know, he's, he's obviously wants to uh, stay ingratiated to the owners and uh, you know, the, the commissioner's office and all of that. Like at he's, some point, he's MLB though, network, lose, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So directly from, from MLB, you lose all of your credibility, all of it, it's gone. So it's almost like, just stop, just stop saying things because people who don't understand that are now seeing this, And it's working. It works to make people think that, well, I guess the owners are really trying very hard and it's the players who are being very, very difficult. When in reality, it's the owners who have been negotiating in bad faith from the very beginning. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating that these people who sell themselves as reporters, who are using social media to self-publish news reports, aren't reporting the news at all. It's it's 100% just reiterating the talking points that benefit major league baseball in the commissioner's office and it's frustrating so yeah. I, th- there there it is I, i'm off my soapbox
2: <laughs> yeah th- having existed around a lot of people who do reporting and beat reporting versus scoops reporting you're kind of like weird different things but uh you know, it's like they're yeah. definitely different niches and like the journalistic realm to kind of pay attention to they there are the guys who exist to be first in twitter you know it's like i don't necessarily think of like in the nba terms like shams and Waj as people who are like there to carry water because like they've kind of monopolized it i imagine they get a lot of their sourcing actually from agents and stuff like that that wouldn't surprise me at all um Mm -hmm. on the mlb side a lot of the scoops reporters though are definitely having connections through front offices um bob denningale kind of Famously, infamously, like, is gonna just like text up what some people send him, but like, does seem like he has legitimate sourcing, especially close to the White Sox, it seems that is accurate and really useful in some
1: cases. Um, Bob definitely kind of, he's also easily manipulated through those same channels.
2: But I don't think Bob was like kind of like maliciously shilling in the same way that some of the people seem like they are almost actively doing so. And I want to differentiate there. However, there are, in addition to like those outright scoops, people there are a whole lot of team beat reporters on the ground. And there's some people that I like fill my Twitter feed with um, who did a really good job of reporting live from negotiations without a whole lot of spin or with this sort of like, yeah, this is just reality and I have to tell it you that way. That's how it is. I mean, Jeff Passant does a lot of, scoops ish stuff but he also tends to act in my mind a lot like a beat reporter in some ways yeah like the way he kind of talks about things is very much talking about functional stuff it's not just first it's like what are the implications in like a four-year team sort of way but then like you go down like chandler rome is the astros uh beat reporter for the Houston chronicle he was doing some just solid here's what's going on without any of like the like editorializing that just kind of like right. takes away from the fact that it's like, yeah, they walked back. Um sort of way. Uh and then there's some beat reporters who just know that part of their job is to do the sort of like no, like the, this is what the reality actually is. My sources aren't just the FO, which is gonna help you actually understand things better. Uh I think who is it? Um Lindsay Adler for the Yankees for for the Athletic does a fantastic job of that. And then on top of that, there are the people who are just job is just right editorialized, like Jim Bowden, GM. Yeah, oh man. my goodness. Um, <laughs> and I really want to say, like, people who are what you would consider journalists who work for a newspaper or whatever it is that is replaced your newspaper, who do actual reporting, are people who are like those beat reporters, and they are doing by and large a really good job. They are also not the people who have the largest Twitter following, um, right? Does seem to me though, if you're the person who's going to learn about this through your local paper and, like, you know, you're 50 years old, chances are the B reporter who's, re- who's talking about things is going to change their tune of lately and is probably just like the facts on the page say that this is what it is. Like,
0: there yeah. was no like Even... fake optimism.
2: So, I don't know if this like AstroTurf PR campaign through Scoops reporters who are beholden to front office is going to work it seems to me that most people have read the room that are not like um, who are like plugged in like our us. And I will say who were the people who typically go to games pretty frequently. I don't know how much we need to specifically care about how the personal opinion of someone who is not going to buy a ticket, no matter what is here, the whales, so to speak, the people who buy season tickets or whatever, like who, what do they think? And where do they get their information from? And, you know, like people who buy merch, um, it would be like the growing markets. Where do they get the information yeah. from? So that's what I'm curious about.
1: Well, it's I, even the AP the other day, they're the ones that had the headline, you know, Max Scherzer shows up for negotiations in his Porsche. Like that is very clearly a headline that is meant to say, really, really rich guy shows up unhappy about not making more money. And Nobody's talking about the the owners helicoptering in, right? Or like however they get there. They're certainly not, probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe they are, but driving like a, a 92 Camry to these negotiations, right? Like you're talking about, sure, if Max Scherzer can drive his Porsche because he's so wealthy, you're still talking about owners that are. 10 20 30 times fold more wealthy than max scherzer and we're not talking about what they're driving it just it's uh, it's just so frustrating and and i was very proud to see a lot of people kind of pounce on that but that's an ap headline that should not be it should not exist like that yeah
2: i think you know even taking that a step further if you have to live in this sort of like sad world that we do you have to attempt to try to learn from that. It. And it's telling though that like these things get like ignored hours later. But if you go back through, like, for example, like PL Discord, I like went and scrolled through like the stuff overnight, or I went and scrolled through a, like MLB news channel to see like who had reported which things. You no, know, we tend to have a don't post Heyman in there as if it's news sort of like bent among people who are posting those things in there and it does seem to me as though like that immediately after when everyone pulled the basically pulled the rug out and said, no, the players are voting. No, they don't like this. They have not liked this all along. Right. There has been a steady stream of people like, um, Evan for the, uh, athletic who's doing a pretty good job of just saying, like they air far apart. This thing that has been offered. If you watch carefully are coming from a couple sources who are, seem like they're reporting out what seems to be, to be good to be true. But if you just take on the whole, a flood of information, John Heyman tweet about, oh, the offer might look like this, three, four hundred more tweets, they've walked back and forth that you're going to want to pounce on that. So it's just a nice reminder. It's like, this is the reality. Not everyone can be believed. Not everyone's job is to be right, necessarily. Um, and that sucks.
1: Yeah, I but suppose but I don't probably shouldn't it, be yeah. mad at John but, Heyman for doing basically what he's paid to do. Yeah, I guess I'm frustrated at the fact that it's being sold as something that it's not, and I guess that's the our world of of uh, consumer information these days. It's not limited to baseball. But, um, but, but I would say is
2: don't get mad at people who are doing a different job and doing it very well. I will say, and like don't blame Chandler Rome. Don't blame. Um, I mean i got slightly mad at rosenthal like because you kind of like said both sides were bad in an argument earlier this week where he's like here just agree on this thing just kind of dumb and then it seems like even he has been chipped away at so yeah we'll see um i i do think that moments like these have value in really showing kind of like what a lot of sort of institutional reporting people are like and By and large, most of them are not doing really terrible things, but the people who have a lot of followers who might be the top of your feed, make some choices there if you
1: need to. Just understand the context, I guess. Buyer beware, consumer beware, reader beware. Um, And on that note, that very happy, positive note, Alexander, (laughs) that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you for uh, joining me, as always. Um, And uh, yeah, I guess if you could just let the people know where they can find us. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat
2: i'm on twitter at chase underscore rate and most importantly you can find our podcast on twitter at dugout study hall where you can send us some questions please be sure to subscribe to the Pictureless podcast feed if you haven't done that already leave us a good review if you can be so kind and If you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me.
1: All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.